Welcome, Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker. Today's stories, Illinois has passed an amendment to the state's Illinois Wage Payment and Collections Act that would make prime contractors on a construction project liable for unpaid wages to all of the contracts on the construction project. The Massachusetts Attorney General is suing Exxon for violation of consumer protection laws and misleading and deceiving the public about the effects of fossil fuels on climate change and the first ever service of a legal notice via NFT. And I'll even explain to you what an NFT is if you aren't so sick of hearing about them. All of that and more, here's what you need to know. Governor Pritzker in Illinois just signed HB 512 this past week, which goes into effect after July 1st of 2022. Quote, a primary contractor making or taking a contract in the state for the erection, construction, alteration, repair of a building, structure, or other private work in the state shall assume and is liable for any debt owned to a claimant incurred pursuant to this act by a subcontractor at any tier under the act for the wage claimant's performance of labor included in the subject of the contract between the primary contractor and the owner, unquote. So let me translate that for you. This new law deals with prime contractors, not with general contractors. And as a reminder, the difference between a prime and a general contractor is that the prime has a contract directly with the property owner, while the general contractor is in charge of hiring and managing the subcontractors, generally speaking. Now, the new law means that the primary contractor's liability extends to any unpaid wages or fringe or other benefits, payments, contributions, etc., including interest, statutory penalties, and attorney's fees for anything on the project, all of its subcontractors. The bill does require that in the event the prime contractor has to pay a wage claim of employees, one of the subs, those subs have to indemnify the prime, which is nice, I guess. But in a scenario where the sub can't afford to pay the wage claim in the first place, it's unlikely that they can indemnify the prime. So that offers little protection to the prime, in my opinion. Now, if you're a prime contractor, this is probably going to be considered bad news. Prime should make sure that their pre-qualification requirements for any subcontractors are up to snuff. And this bill certainly would encourage primes to take a more active management role. Auditing the pay of the subcontractors regularly, for example, could be an effective way to stave off claims under this act. Now, if you work in the industry, you might think this bill is kind of redundant. Currently, there is the federal Davis-Bacon Act, which requires primary contractors to have liability for employee wages of their subcontractors on public projects, and there's an Illinois state law equivalent of that act as well. There's also, of course, the Mechanics Lien Act, which can impose liability for subcontractors' wages on the prime in certain circumstances. And of course, there's the union contracts, which can also impose wage liability on primes or really any upstream contractor. Critics say that the bill is unfair for all of the reasons that you'd think they would. But they also point out that the bill would incentivize primes to shy away from, from hiring smaller and less well-financed subcontractors. And this will also incentivize primes to perform more of the work themselves. This bill is tracking a trend that started in New York, where the same bill was passed not all that long ago. Seemingly, this trend of additional wage protections for construction workers or additional liabilities for contractors depends on which side of that equation you work on might continue to gain steam in states with like-minded legislators. And given that the political makeup of so-called blue states contain most of this country's developed urban centers, the passing of bills like this in only a few states could mean that a huge chunk of the construction industry is subject to these new types of laws. 
If you're in the construction industry, I recommend that you take a long look at your indemnification agreements, make sure that there's nothing in there that could be construed to violate your state's laws against self-indemnification or potentially your state's joint tortfeasor contribution act. And if you're a prime contractor, this might be a good time to take a look at your auditing, bidding, and pre-qualification processes as well. By the way, if you need any help with any of that, just give me a call. This is what I do for a living. Up next, Massachusetts highest court denied a motion to dismiss last week by Exxon, the fossil fuel giant, on the complaint filed by the state of Massachusetts, which accuses the company of misleading the public about the role of, that fossil fuels played in causing climate change. The lawsuit was originally filed in 2019 by Massachusetts Attorney General Mara Healy. Typically, I try to read the actual filings when I report on stuff like this, but this complaint was like 200 pages long, and I can't bill for producing this show, so we're not going to do that this time. Instead, I'll rely on WBUR, which is a local Boston news outlet whose reporters do get paid to read this stuff. And quoting from WBUR, which is quoting from the complaint, quote, the lawsuit filed in Suffolk Superior Court alleges that the company's deception campaign is ongoing and violates state consumer and investor protection laws. Quote, we're making a claim that Exxon, like those behind the subprime mortgage crisis a decade ago, is intentionally deceiving investors by hiding the systemic risk of climate change to the economy and to its own business, unquote, Healy said. Healy also said, Exxon claims to investors that the company is prepared for the business consequences of climate change, but internal documents show that Exxon tells Massachusetts one thing and then does another. That's illegal, unquote. The lawsuit also claims that Exxon purposefully deceived Massachusetts consumers who use its product at gas stations across the state. ExxonMobil's relentless greenwashing marketing campaign targets consumers with messaging regarding Exxon's purported environmental stewardship, corporate leadership in the realm of environmental and climate protection, and innovative clean energy research while failing to disclose that ExxonMobil is spending little on clean energy development and instead is secretly opposing actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and ramping up production of fossil fuels that cause climate change. The 211 page complaint states, unquote. So I couldn't help myself and I did skim the complaint. The first 767 paragraphs are all historical context. It wasn't until page 193 that the first cause of action was stated and it's for violation of the Massachusetts Consumer Protection Act. Generally, the allegations are that Exxon has misrepresented and failed to disclose material facts regarding systemic climate change risks to its customers. Massachusetts is asking for injunctive relief to cease Exxon's unlawful conduct as well as civil penalties under the relevant Massachusetts statutes. And the second cause of action is similar, this time aimed at Exxon's materially false and misleading statements to Massachusetts investors regarding the use of a proxy cost of carbon. The proxy cost of carbon, by the way, is described by Exxon to be something that can maybe offset uh, it's carbon production. And one thing I learned recently that made me angry was that the term carbon neutral is used by companies like Exxon in this case and like, say, Apple, which claims that it's carbon neutral. doesn't really mean that the company stops producing carbon. It means that it has bought an amount of like rainforest land somewhere on the planet that it pledges not to bulldoze in the future and assigns a negative carbon value to that plot of land, subtracts that from its carbon emissions. And if that sounds like bullshit, it's because it probably is. Um, anyways, the state is asking the court for injunctive relief and award of $5,000 per violation of the Massachusetts Consumer Protection Act, which would be like $5,000 per Exxon commercial. 
aired in the state since the 70s, which would probably add up to many hundreds of millions of dollars. Also, attorney's fees and costs. So that's the complaint. Going back to the recent ruling, quote, lawyers for Exxon argued in court documents that the company's statements about climate change and energy policy were protected petitioning activity, even if they were made to defend the company's reputation. But the top court said the law Exxon claims should protect the company in this case doesn't apply to government enforcement actions brought by the attorney general, unquote. So going back to the WBR, <clears throat> going back to the WBUR case, they quote Attorney General Healy as saying, rather than honestly disclose and mitigate climate change risks, ExxonMobil's misrepresentations about and failures to disclose those risks have delayed the needed transition to clean energy around the world and make these existential climate-driven threats to the global economy more likely to occur. Healy called the court's ruling a resounding victory in the state's effort to stop Exxon from lying to investors and consumers. Quote, Exxon's repeated attempts to stonewall our lawsuit have been baseless, and this effort was no different. We look forward to proceeding with our case and having our day in court to show how Exxon is breaking the law and to put an end to the deception once and for all, she said in a statement. So, Longtime listeners by now know that I think it's fun and interesting when litigants try to use existing frameworks, in this case, the Massachusetts Consumer Protection Laws, to enforce new conceptions of rights that probably didn't exist at the time those frameworks were put together. The common law develops in a lot of ways through lawyers taking a square peg, bashing it with a hammer through a round hole. And what you end up with is a peg that has the corners kind of shorn off and a hole that looks vaguely squarish. This brings to mind the lawsuit filed by the kids in Montana claiming that they have a constitutional right to a clean and healthy climate under the Montana Constitution, which we covered in Episode 9. Anyways, lawsuits like this tend to create a roadmap for other states, and for now, Massachusetts lawsuit is still alive and kicking. We'll keep tabs on it as it works its way through the courts. In our last story, this week, a defendant was sued and served with an asset freeze notice via NFT. This is all from a Law 360 article, which I'll be relying on. The anonymous defendant is accused of stealing $1.3 million in digital assets from a company called LCX. Holland Knight, which is a New York law firm retained by LCX to recover the stolen assets. Apparently, the only clue that they had of who the thief was was a blockchain address. Think of it like they would have taken online artwork and mail it to their home address using the anonymous defendant's blockchain address. You could track down where they would have hypothetically mailed the artwork to, if that makes any sense to you. Uh, we also covered crypto thefts before on episode 18, and I think a few others if you want to go back for some background. But without any way in this case of serving the unknown defendant besides this blockchain address, a New York judge granted Holland and Knight's request to serve notice of the asset freeze on the defendant via an NFT sent to their blockchain address. Now, the rapidly evolving market for cryptocurrency and NFT technology has created an uncertain market, which is typically right now at least wrought with cyber crimes. A lead attorney on the case, Anthony Balthazar, said, quote, having a judge in this case recognize that a fair method of delivering information to a defendant is through a blockchain address when that's the only trace they've left is just a leap forward, really, in allowing us to bring an appropriate remedy in the right cases for the right clients, unquote. 
Now, of course, alternative methods of serving legal notices have been around for decades. For example, publishing notice in a newspaper is kind of an old school way to do something similar to this. Um, serving a defendant via a digital token is just an evolution of that process, according to Michelle DiStefano, a University of Miami School of Law professor who teaches on attorneys' obligations to provide legal notice to defendants in her civil procedure classes. Cryptocurrency got its big break over a decade ago when Bitcoin was released, of course, in the 13 years since, not only has the value of Bitcoin fluctuated quite a bit, uh, right now it's in the dumps compared to recent prices, um, but the entire crypto market has evolved and is currently in the dumps, but whatever. Non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, sound a lot more complicated than they actually are. NFTs are basically a unique code, which is the same concept as a Bitcoin, that represents a real-world object or even a real-world concept or idea, like, for example, a litigation notice. So, back to the Law 360 piece. Balthazar said being able to serve legal notice via a digital token gives clients a way to initiate legal proceedings when defendants are concealing their identity which is often the case with blockchain and cryptocurrency-related scams. Quoting from Law360, Balthazar said they are only able to verify that the hyperlink embedded in the token, which goes to the public webpage of the court order, has been clicked by someone. Quote, even if you had a read receipt saying that someone clicked it, you don't know 100% for sure that the intended defendant was the one who read the email and received it, he said. When he's describing the difference between, I guess, like an email notice and this specific blockchain notice. Balthazar noted that he and Dewey, which is one of the other lawyers in the case, are already working on improving the use of digital tokens for legal notice service, including finding a way to verify that the intended recipient saw the embedded notice. DiStefano said that the courts would likely only allow legal notices to be served via digital token in cases where the defendant's mail or email address is unknown. All this is an interesting idea, and it seems to cut against all of the talk of decentralization that crypto heads have been going on about over the past few years. Interesting implications for the future here as blockchain tech gets adopted by normal people for use in everyday business transactions. And if you really want to engage in some interesting speculation, consider what something like this could mean in the metaverse, for example. Thanks, everyone. As I mentioned before, if you have any questions about the construction statute that we covered at the top of the show, feel free to reach out. My email address is uh, jsanker at smithamundson.com. You can find me, of course, on the firm website. Uh, I don't typically put my information out there, but this is the area of law that I specifically practice in, and this is what I spend 2,000 hours per year doing. So feel free to reach out, and we can have a conversation, and hopefully I can help you out if you need it. Otherwise, we will talk to you next week.